Hello and welcome. It's David. We're recording here on Wednesday, the 28th. Brent's still in Harvest. I have the privilege of having uh, another guest co-host this week. Our expert who's going to join us is Troy Walker. Troy, we go back a long ways. It's great to have you. You and I have this migratory pattern where we were both at Kansas State. We actually did some study abroad stuff together. I think our friendship struck up really strongly in Australia um, Mm -hmm. with some good Australian wines. And then you moved to Indiana, then I moved to Indiana, and now you're back in Kansas. And so it's sort of interesting. Come back, David. Just wait until you come back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, it's always great to catch up with you. Two topics that are on the top of my mind, winter wheat acres and fertilizer. I want to start with winter wheat acres. We say Mother Nature bats last, and then we have a big prevent plant situation here in 2019 to 2020. But wheat bats first, and winter wheat acres hit a low of 30 million. We have a forecast network question about 32 million. I'm hearing a lot of folks saying, hey, the planters were rolling this fall. Prices have been a little bit improved from last year. So, Troy, what are some of the things that you're hearing that you're thinking about when it comes to winter wheat? Because, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we'll talk a little bit about why you know a little about winter wheat than I do here in Indiana. It wasn't that long ago that I didn't know. I mean, in Indiana, you have two crops, corn and soybeans. So it was fun to move back home here to Kansas, where we have a few more than two crops and certainly wheat being a key one among them. I work for MKC, Mid-Kansas Cooperative here through the central part of Kansas. I've been here uh, now about five years, came out of Indiana after graduating in K-State with uh, David. Yes, great times on some travel abroad there. For MKC, I've done uh, sales management, so work with uh, part of our sales team here, also our technology team, precision ag team, uh, and then most recently into the fertilizer procurement side of the business. And so it's it's all interesting and exciting. And again, having the varied crops, and we, we uh, cover a fair bit of the state of Kansas, at least in the width of Kansas. So uh, we get to see a lot of different things and, and it helps us give a, get a good perspective on, on what we're doing. And even, even into some of your home part of the world there, David, in the southeast Kansas and southwest Missouri. Well, Troy, I want to interrupt you. Have you, have you had the fried chicken in southeast Kansas yet? You know, I, I've got to say, uh, chicken annies and chicken, I, every time I go down there, I, I do have to uh, call you up and remind myself which one's which. I, I've had it once, but I like to get down there and do a side-by-side. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's what a real economist does, right? We got, we're going we're gonna to need a bit of objective on this. We need to do a real side-by-side comparison. No, that's great. So, Troy, I think of your area and your footprint where you're working, that central Kansas with coverage in the eastern and also into the western third of the state. This part of the country where we've seen wheat acres really contract over the last decade and more corn and soybeans. The economics where producers were looking for the least bad alternative and corn and soybeans had been not a great alternative, but an alternative that was probably better than wheat. So what's going on? How are producers thinking about wheat, especially going into 2021? Sure, sure. I mean, one thing I'd add on to, you know, part of that shift or that contraction is, I mean, just the genetics. I mean, the corn and soybean genetics have improved so much that places that shouldn't grow corn and soybeans, or at least historically weren't able to grow corn and soybeans, at least have a shot at it. Are our yields anywhere near what they are through the Corn Belt, the I states? No, not not at all. We have to we have to set our expectations at a little bit different level. But it it has allowed us to do some different crops now. When you kind of go back to that default or you get some really challenging years, I think that's when our growers start thinking, you know what, this corn and soybean thing was, was good. I'm not going to abandon it, but we know that wheat works here. 
We know that Milo works well here. Those crops are well suited for the stress environment that we get, some of the, the dry conditions, the hot weather there through July that we get. Sometimes corn and beans just do not respond as well to that. So I think when we come out of a year that has those conditions, which is kind of what you know, we've talked about, that's what we're coming out of right now. I think it makes growers reset like, hey, maybe I should go back to something that that I know works in this geography. I think the other big driver that we've seen this year was just the opportunity. The harvest, we did not have, we haven't had any setbacks as far as delays in harvest. I don't recall exactly if it was last year or the year before. We were way down in wheat acres just because we couldn't get in the field to get them planted. We haven't had that issue this year. Yesterday really being the first precipitation event of any kind we've had in probably 45 to 60 days for a lot of our territory, which to your point creates another challenge. Uh, and we were at that end too. So you have the extreme where we can't get into the field, what we had a couple years ago. This year, we've been able to get in. When I take your poll, I'm I'm bullish. I think we're going to plant over 32 million, but but you don't have to take, you know, I mean, that's, that's my score that that'll impact, not anybody else's. So, but I think, I, I think we were at the point here last week where we're like, we're putting wheat out, but I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how well it's going to come up. And we're dusting it in. I love some of these, every, every place you go in the country has their own wives, tales, local things. I think one of them they say here is uh, dust it in and bust the bin which is a fun one. So we'll, we'll see. Um, there's also some interesting ones about fog. So that's right. Then dust it in. We're going to get some precipitation in 60 to 90 days. We'll have a wet winter here. This weed is going to take off and we'll have a great crop come the spring. The other thing that makes me a little bit more bullish on wheat acres is some of our ground out West that often they don't think it's going to go. They're just not going to plant anything at all. They went ahead and, and put some wheat out. And even some of my friends, some friends and, and people we work with to the east who, yeah, maybe we will, maybe we won't. I think the economics looked good this year. And again, the opportunity presented itself uh, with, a, with a very fluid harvest to, to plant some wheat in the east. So I, I just think in general, there's been a lot of opportunity. Uh, the market's given you reason. The market for wheat, you follow it a lot closer than I do, really looked good. For that 2021 wheat there for a while, uh, whenever you can look at something plus five, you know, a lot of people are saying, yep, sign me up. I'll, I'll go give that a shot. You know, now we talked about it before. The other thing with wheat, there are plenty of people who will just plant it and say, well, we'll see what happens. We'll give it a shot. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, at least we graze some cattle on it or, or we'll tear it out later or something like that. You do see some of that now. We don't often see people actually in our territory really tear it out from time to time. But again, I, I love wheat. It's a really, really resilient and tough crop. Felt bad for one of our producers this year. Uh, their, their crop looked terrible. They tore one field out. They left the other field next to it. Yeah, it was some of the best wheat they'd ever harvested, you know, but <laughs> there was a stretch in there that, I, you know, everybody was like, golly, this looks terrible. This is horrible. You know, it's not going to do anything. And then you know, you just get the weather when you need it and all that. And, and it came on really strong. It was really good. I was talking to my family earlier today and they're in Eastern Kansas and they uh, were saying like, Oh, the wheat, it's been real dry. It didn't come up very good. And I just kind of said, well, that's the first life. <laughs> There's about nine of them, nine right. lives of wheat. Right. And it's sort of interesting because 
if weed doesn't look like it's going to be absolutely horrible and absolutely great in the same growing season and typically about a month apart, something's amiss. <laughs> so you really have to, it's weeds yeah. a bizarre crop. So yeah, absolutely. And, and we've talked about it before, David. I mean, I think we're getting better and better and more and more intentional with growing our wheat too. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Oh, well, yeah, you know, I, grandpa grew wheat, dad grew wheat, you know, we've all grown wheat and they did it the same way with the same amount of fertilizer and all of that. Well, that's, that's changing. Every year we sell more and more certified wheat. We sell more and more treated wheat. Telling that story that if you put something into this crop, then you, it will return it. It'll, it'll give it back out on the other side. So when the market allows you capture good gain, gains on wheat and good profitability in wheat, then go ahead and invest in that crop. We're actually working on a post probably up the first week of November, looking at the prices. The prices have improved. You know, it's interesting, the USDA data has a lag in it. So the market rallies, it's sort of amazing to look back at the price charts because this rally has been the last 45 to 60 days. Things were pretty bleak in the middle of August, right? But things have turned around quite a bit here. So some of the data hasn't picked that up yet, but I think producers are planting some of this wheat and they're calling the local elevator and they can get $5 plus locked in for harvest delivery. And that, that starts to change the economics for the positive. Real right. quick, double crop soybeans. So sometimes producers in your part of the country can plant wheat and still plant on a soybean crop. So just a few thoughts on that. Actually, a lot of our producers count on double crop soybeans, which also changes the economics around wheat, right? If you're, if you're counting on it, or if you think you have the opportunity to do double crop soybeans, then by all means, why not do wheat? And particularly when double crop soybeans from time to time, or it seems about half the time, they do as well as uh, primary crop soybeans. So, and, and as people get more and more comfortable with doing that. Now, it, I will say it does seem to be kind of a narrow band here, where we have the opportunity to do double crop soybeans, but we're, we're right in the heart of it here through central Kansas where we can do that. So good economics. A lot of our producers, a lot of our growers do look at doing that and plan on doing that from the very beginning. And that certainly helps the economics. Uh, you're, you're the economist, right? You get more turns on that piece of ground every year. So uh, plus you got something growing out there, you know, as we get, and that's another thing that I think most folks will probably look at you get into whether it's regenerative ag or cover crops or whatever. Wheat's a good one. It gives you something growing out there. It keeps, keeps something putting carbon back into the, to the ground. And, and then you have the opportunity to take it to harvest later if it, if it works out that way. It's a great opportunity for a lot of our growers. So switching gears here just a little bit, but 2021 fertilizer prices, looked at a few articles and the data fertilizer prices this fall are down from spring and spring prices were already some of the lowest of the last 10 years. As producers are thinking about fertilizer prices for next spring, what do you have on the side of the ledger that points to maybe upward price risk? And what do you have on the other side of the ledger that's maybe neutral or lower? Help us think through some of the uncertainties that we should be watching and listening for over the next six months. In my relatively short time in fertilizer that I've, I've really enjoyed is that it, it, it really functions on a lot of the more pure economic principles that, you know, we learned in, in ag economics in, in K-State, you know, it's supply and demand driven largely. Uh, you've got global supply, uh, what different global players are doing, uh, whether that's buying, selling, or manufacturing that ends up affecting us and driving driving the overall market to some extent. And then, and then again, you get into just supply and demand. In season, it's going to go up. I mean, that's just kind of the way it goes, you know, before season, it's hard to say. Now, I will also say there does seem to be some fair, in my opinion, kind of unnatural 
elements as far as pure economics go to fertilizer. And that's probably due to the few, the number of players that are involved in it. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of players involved in it. So they can say, Hey, you know, this quarter is going to go up by this much or whatever. And I, you know, how, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because they said it said it was, and there's not very many people that have to follow to make that price adjustment a reality. And so you do see that. For me, just real quick, you mentioned, yeah, you look historically and our sales team was, we were talking about this recently. I mean, you look at some of our prices, even phosphate to some extent, which has had just a crazy, like very unnatural, in my opinion, rally or, or run here this fall. But per, particularly the nitrogens, I mean, we're well below historical averages and we're below where we were last year when we thought it was a pretty good deal. So as we go into spring, as we go into the winter, uh, the fall applications here in, in central Kansas, do I expect it to go up? Yeah, I do, but I don't expect it to just run away from itself. So I, yes, I look for, and part of that is, I mean, you know, there is a cost of manufacturing, you know, at some point we've got to be close to the bottom uh, or you would think, but it's hard to say. I think one of the things that's driven your nitrogen, again, being somewhat a short timer in the fertilizer industry, uh, the Chinese, again, have come back and I think they've really played around and screwed around with the, uh, you know, the commodity markets as well. But when they want to go in and start manufacturing some urea, they can put a whole lot of urea out into the marketplace. And then that will affect everybody else from who's buying from the Chinese instead of from the Arabs or the Russians or something like that. So it, it can affect uh, flows. Phosphates, you know, that's the, the wild one with the, the mosaic countervailing suit. I'm not sure if you guys have talked about that too much, David. Certainly drove up the price of phosphates through the fall. Everybody's expect, you know, there are some rulings. There's a, a preliminary ruling coming out here uh, in, in late November. And then some some more final judgments, I believe, in January or February timeframe. Boy, I'm really nervous to price anybody phosphates right now. I mean, they're they're high. They're not high because of normal economic factors of supply and demand. I mean, it is supply, but it's artificially limited supply because we're changing all of the import situations. You know, people who normally import to the U.S. are not importing to the U.S., so uh, you have to change those supply chains or supply flow lanes, you know, who, who brings stuff in. And we're starting to see some of that. So, and that's the cool part about all of this. You know, the market will kind of balance itself back out with supply and demand. If the Russians can't bring it into the U.S., then the Australians will. Uh, and then the Russians will go somewhere else or, or however it is. So there's some of that phosphate or potash, sorry. You know, I don't know that there's a whole lot, uh, a lot of excitement in that market right now, but nitrogen, I, I look for it, you know, again, you're going to go in season. Uh, you're going to have more demand. It should go up. My personal opinion is I don't know that it runs away, but you know, it'll go up. You take a little bit of the low nitrogen prices has been driven by the lack of, or the, the lack of corn acres from high prevent plants last year and this year. Is that sort of lack of I don't want to say lack of demand, but lack of acres to apply it. Has that factored in a little bit well, or the market's uh, responding to that? It could. Uh, I mean, and, and you think about that now, right? If you don't have an outlet, uh, manufacturers are going to produce. And most of those factories, it's, it's tough for them to throttle back too much. I mean, there is like a minimum level of output that has to happen. And so if something happens, and we were concerned a couple of weeks ago about an NH3 application here in the fall to being too dry. And so that application wouldn't happen. Now, what you see there is maybe they'll shift into a different commodity. But 
you know, that NH3 that's being produced is going to have to go somewhere. So if you have less corn acres, corn acres certainly being the biggest driver of nitrogen by far, yeah, it makes a big difference in the overall demand, again, where the supply and flow goes. So uh, if you don't have as many corn acres, you're going to have more UAN in the pipeline or, you know, in the supply chain that doesn't necessarily have a home and that'll drive things down. So that certainly could be part of it. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and you can pass on this question. Milo, what's going on with the uh, redheaded stepchild of sorghum or Milo? I'm hearing some good prices. Are producers itching to plant it next year? And there's a, there's a pun in there if you're familiar with the crop. (laughs) I picked that up. I picked that up. You know, I I think it's limited, right? I I even talked to folks in Eastern Kansas and they're like, I'm, I'm still not planting Milo. Talk to people outside of Kansas, and they're like, I don't, I don't even know what that crop is. I mean, literally, <laughs> legitimately, don't even know what what Milo or grain sorghum is. But again, through our the central part of our territory here, yeah, we're seeing an uptick in it. You know, we're seeing more growers want to plant it, and that's strictly Chinese demand. The Chinese have come in in a very big way and purchased a lot here recently, and that's always the question, right? Is that going to continue on into 2021? I don't know. And what we continue to encourage our growers on either the agronomy side or the grain side is, look, if you're going to plan to do something in 2021 on Milo, uh, make sure you figure out a mechanism to lay off some of that risk. Nobody saw this coming. I think it could, you know, who knows? It could disappear just as quick. I don't know that anybody has high confidence in and out guessing what the Chinese are going to or not going to do, or the, the U.S. government is go- or is not going to do as it relates to the Chinese. Obviously, they're a big world player, and they are a huge world player when it comes to Milo, and that's, that's driven things up for the Milo market, which is great, because like I said, Milo is a great crop for a lot of, you know, a lot of the area here through the, the Great Plains. Uh, we can grow Milo. It, it fits very well here. We'll see what happens. But I've also heard lots of growers with intentions to do this crop or that crop. And when it comes down to it, you know, I kind of roll back to the default. So we'll, we'll see what actually happens. There's a lot of time to make plans uh, before we actually get planters rolling next spring. A lot of things that can fall apart because uh, there's a sort of a loophole there that sorghum has some appeal or Milo has some appeal to the Chinese. Corn has this tariff rate quota that traders have to work their way through. So sorghum has its own little back door of sorts. And so it's a very interesting crop to keep an eye on. Someone mentioned to me the other day, and I'll just, I won't wrap up here at this thought was we weren't that long ago when ethanol plants weren't bidding on corn, right? And if you were wanting to think about trying to sell Milo a year ago or six months ago, the outlook there was just really bleak. And so I really like that your point there of we need to remember our risk management here. We need to really think about, hey, we're in this sort of upbeat part of the cycle or we're in an upbeat phase here. Let's not forget the risk management tools. And so if we want to make plans for 2021, we need to start locking that in. So Troy, I always learn a lot from you. Thanks for enlightening me and our listeners. We'll have to do this again sometime Next week, of course, is the big election. You can get your forecasts updated for that. It's interesting. I'll write a quick article. Brent and I were trading emails. The models that are forecasting based on votes 
-hmm. are saying one thing. They're saying Biden has a pretty high probability of winning. If you look at some of the betting markets, so that the forecast network is like a probability, there's some betting markets, those are closer to 50-50. So it's interesting to see this play out, but a lot of data coming at you there. Brent and I just wrote an article about political reality. So take a look at that. How do you sort through all that noise? Again, thanks for joining us. Special thanks to Troy. And uh, in the meantime, stay curious. Oh, 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 oh,